Hi, everybody. This is Gary Sandy, and thank you very much for listening to the WKRP cast. So just sit right down, relax, open your ears real wide, and say... Weather today in the greater Cincinnati area. Are you awake? Whoa! Are you awake now? But the senator, while insisting he was not intoxicated, could not explain his nudity. Say what? Dear God, she's going to kill us all. Welcome to the WKRP cast. My name is Alan Stair. And I'm Donna Stair. This is the fourth and final season of our week-by-week, episode-by-episode rewatch. Join us for this final season as we're getting into the music, the trivia, and the fun of WKRP. So, fellow babies, stay tuned and stay cool. It's time for the WKRP cast. I'm at WKRP in Cincinnati. Welcome back to the WKRP cast. This week we're getting organized. What is our episode, Donna? We're ready to talk about The Union. The air date was October 21st, 1981. Written by Blake Hunter, story editor Lisa Levin, executive story consultants Dan Gunselman and Steve Marshall. Directed by Linda Day. When the staff at WKRP plans to unionize, Mama Carlson threatens to sell the station. So here we are, three weeks into the fourth season, trying to establish an audience on Wednesday nights at 8.30. This is the third week of October. Baseball fans know the end of October means World Series time. While the strength of Mr. Merlin is fading as a lead-in, the last thing WKRP needs is strong competition on Wednesday nights. So, of course, here comes the World Series to really throw a wrench in the works. This week, WKRP has to go up against Game 2 of the 1981 World Series over on ABC. It pitted the Los Angeles Dodgers against the New York Yankees. The first pitch was at 8.20 p.m. This week's game will be the fourth-ranked primetime program for the week. Next week on Wednesday night, the unfortunate gang at America's favorite radio station will have to go up against Game 6 of the World Series. Game 6 is the deciding game of the series. The Dodgers clinch it, four games to two. This particular World Series was a huge one for media sales. Networks want teams from big cities to appear in championship games. The bigger the city, the better. This series featured two teams, each located in the top two television markets in the entire country. Advertisers and media reps were drooling. No surprise, next week's Game 6 on ABC is the number one ranked program for the week. Hugh Wilson and company just can't catch a break. But enough about baseball and bad ratings. Let's get into the episode. Since we're starting out in the studio, we've got to check out the posters. Yay! We've seen pretty much everything except one. That shimmery blue poster with the reddish swatch down the middle and a woman in the corner wearing a skin-tight PVC suit is a promo for the new Jefferson Starship album, Modern Times. This is the sixth studio album from the Jefferson Starship, and gotta mention, this is during the 10-year period where the band was known as Jefferson Starship. Prior to 1974, they were Jefferson Airplane. They upgraded accommodations from 1974 until 1984. During that time, they were Jefferson Starship. Then, in 1985, Jefferson was dropped, and they became simply Starship. 
The band did undergo numerous personnel changes throughout its life. This album, Modern Times, was released in April of 1981. It marks the return of Grace Slick to the band after a three-year absence. She joined the sessions late. Mickey Thomas is listed as lead vocal on all tracks, but Grace is credited with either backing or co-lead vocals. The single, Find Your Way Back, would be the only top 40 hit. Find your way back Find your way back To her heart Find your way back Find your way back It would peak at number 29 in April of 1981. We fade up in the studio where we hear Promises in the Dark by Pat Benatar. Check Johnny's thumb. He's got a Band-Aid over the knuckle. We might have to start doing the Johnny Fever Bandage Report. <laughs> Johnny sits up after being at eye level with the turntable. He was cueing the next song. As we've mentioned in the past, WKRP is the only radio station in the world where the jocks can cue records by sight instead of through headphones. Johnny has the album cover for the Rolling Stones' Tattoo You in his mouth. It's the back. We'll talk about it in just a minute. Pat Benatar from her new album, tuned called Promises in the Dark. I guess we've all heard those, right, babies? Uh, and this is The Doctor, but I do deliver right here on WKRP where it's time for me to remind you that WKRP, with your generous help and support, has now climbed to 10th place in the Cincinnati market. <laughs> if I sound emotional about this, uh, it's because I can still hear my father saying, son, no matter what you decide to do in this life, always try to come in 10th. <laughs> I think we've done it here, Dad. The song we heard at the fade-up, Promises in the Dark, is from Pat Benatar's third studio album, Precious Time. It was released in July of 1981. The first single release from Precious Time was Fire and Ice. It had gone to number 17 in July. This cut would barely crack the top 40. Promises in the Dark peaked at number 38 on the U.S. Hot 100 just a couple of weeks before this episode aired. When Johnny starts into the next song, we get a song substitution and a weird replaced voiceover for Johnny on the Shout Factory discs. When this episode originally aired in October of 1981, Johnny went in to start me up by the Rolling Stones. The album he had in his mouth at the start of the scene was the Stones' 1981 Tattoo You, where you'll find the song Start Me Up, so it all makes sense. The image we're seeing is what's on the back of the album. It appears at first glance to be a foot in a high-heeled shoe, but if you look more closely, you realize it's the manipulated photo of a hairy leg and a cloven hoof. The hoof is polished to a high shine like a patent leather pump. The stiletto heel completes the shoe effect. A hoof, of course, evokes a satanic image, so the Stones were keeping their Satan worshippers rumor alive. 
The same image was also used as the cover art for the Start Me Up single sleeve. Had you been listening in October of 1981, what Johnny went into would have sounded like this. Anyhow, you, the listener, have made us what we are today, and we thank you very much. Stones, start me up. Come on, Johnny, put a little more conviction into it, will you? That clip, of course, was taken from the Big D, Dale Kovar's amazing set of recreated discs. Start Me Up isn't just a hit from the Stones. This was their biggest hit of the 1980s. So as we mentioned before, there's no way Shout Factory is going to get it cleared. They tried. Instead of allowing Johnny to go into the Stones, Shout Factory had to go with a generic music clip. Somebody has redubbed Johnny's voice, and they've done it pretty poorly. Howard Hessman is very visibly saying the word up at the end of the talk piece, so they had to end the replacement talk bit with the word up. Here's what's on the Shout Factory disc. It doesn't sound like Johnny, and it doesn't make a lot of sense. Anyhow, you, the listener, have made us what we are today, and we thank you very much. So, it's, it's hardly up. Andy has walked up to the window and he's watching Johnny. When the song begins playing, the door to the studio opens and Andy walks in. I think this is a great little detail. Herb, Bailey, the big guy and Jennifer have all entered the studio while the on-air light is lit. Andy, you notice, waited until the light was off. He knew Johnny had turned off the mic and he could enter the studio without it being heard over the air. Program directors are always the most keenly aware of how the station sounds. Noises in the background, a door opening, voices, those are all unprofessional. Andy wouldn't want anything to make the station sound unprofessional, so he respects the on-air light. Andy asks Johnny to put a little more conviction into the announcement about moving up to 10th place. Carlson really wants to thank his listeners for the good ratings. He's a very grateful guy. Johnny gives Andy a look. Be grateful to me. Give me some money. Andy says these things take time. Spoken like a true crypto-fascist puppet of the managerial elite. <laughs> Johnny tells Andy he doesn't know how he can look at himself in the mirror. Well, I like looking at myself in the mirror. So Andy leaves the studio. Johnny checks to make sure he's gone. Then he pulls out a folded piece of paper from under some other papers. He's reading it when Venus enters. Now, let's take a look at Venus's vibin' threads. Venus is wearing a shiny blue long-sleeved shirt that has a tiny collar and a thin scarlet red sequin tie. The shirt has buttons down both sides of the front, like a tunic. There are epaulettes on each shoulder. He's wearing purple velvet pants with a thin silver belt. Venus is carrying a folded yellow piece of paper that looks just like the one Johnny's reading. Hey, hey. did you happen to find a pair of large gold earrings in here this morning? Yours? No. Venus unfolds the paper he's carrying and he shows it to Johnny. He has a big smile on his face. I got a letter here from the Brotherhood of the Midwestern Radio Workers. They want me to organize a union right here at KRP. No kidding. Johnny holds up his yellow piece of paper. You too? 
Andy enters the studio. Johnny and Venus quickly tuck their letters out of view. Andy looks at the two of them and says, He mentions Venus is in a bit early. Yeah, I'm a dedicated guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) Venus asks Andy if he found any gold earrings in his office. Andy tells him no. Just where was Venus with this young lady? (laughs) uh, These gold earrings could be anywhere in this station. (laughs) Oh, they were busy. So, what are you two guys talking about? The weather. Uh, Nothing and the weather. This is starting to feel a bit awkward. Johnny asks Andy what he wants. Your friendship? Kind of mock around with you guys? Share your joys and your hardships? Venus has a serious look on his face. Gee, I don't know, Andy. (laughs) Andy tells him to let him know if they change their minds. He leaves the studio. As soon as he's out of earshot, Johnny says Andy is snooping around. Tell you they had a meeting about the union this morning over at WPIG. I like it. It has a ring of conspiracy to it. Yeah. Johnny starts to say something else, but then the studio door opens. They both jump. It's Bailey. She, too, is carrying the folded piece of yellow paper. I have something very important to talk about, and it's confidential, so I want both your words and nothing will leave this room. Johnny and Venus unfold their papers. Oh, well, hell. (laughs) (laughs) Venus speaks without thinking it all the way through. I guess they wrote everybody if they wrote you... He stops himself before going any further. He tries to change the subject by asking Bailey what she thinks about the letter. She tells him she thinks the union might be the only way for people around there to get a living wage. Johnny looks at Bailey. What exactly is a living wage? Well, you see, the union has a minimum salary level based on how long you've been in the business. I guess a real old-timer could clean up. The wheels in Johnny's head are turning. The always broke doctor is starting to see the union light. He begins singing. I'll always look for the union label. Come on, everybody. Johnny stands. <laughs> the three of them put their arms around each other as they sing loudly. When you are buying a coat dress or blouse, remember somewhere our union sewing, our wages going. Just so everybody's on the same page, let's define union, or more specifically, labor union. A labor union is any group of people in the same profession who band together for the purpose of protecting and advancing their rights and interests. Labor unions primarily engage in something called collective bargaining, which just means a small group does the negotiating for the entire organization. Unions represent laborers, both skilled and unskilled. Management is the traditional enemy of the union. Management is sitting on the other side of the table when it comes to union negotiations. In addition to pay negotiations, unions also work to secure a safe work environment and will negotiate benefits, such as retirement or health care plans. Unions are supported through dues paid by members. Some unions require new members to undergo training sponsored by the union. The song they were singing at the end of the scene has become somewhat of a general union anthem, but it started out as a jingle for a very specific labor union. Warning, this jingle is an earmite you cannot shake. Once you've heard it, you'll be humming it for days. Look for that union label was written by legendary female advertising executive Paula Green, along with Malcolm Dobbs for the Paula Green Advertising Agency in 1975. 
The client was the International Ladies' Garment Workers' Union, or the ILGWU. The ILGWU formed in New York in 1900. It never really went all that international, but it was, at one time, one of the largest labor unions in the United States. In the 1970s, when U.S. textile and clothing manufacturing began to move overseas, the ILGWU decided to launch a campaign promoting Made in the USA and Buy American. The centerpiece of the campaign was a series of TV spots featuring the new jingle sung by actual ILGWU members. First launched in 1975, each spot would feature a union member speaking for 10 to 15 seconds about how buying clothing made overseas took away American jobs. Then a lone voice would start singing the jingle. Others would join, building into a rousing and memorable anthem. Look for the union label. you've really made an impact on pop culture? You get spoofed on Saturday Night Live. The SNL parody of the union label jingle from the late 1970s is hilarious. It's anchored by Lorraine Newman, who does the lead-in talk piece. Then she sings that first solo voice part. We found a clip. The audio is not great, but it's definitely worth a listen, even with the bad sound. Every time you buy pot from Mexico or Colombia, you're putting an American out of work. We of the American Dope Growers Union support ourselves by growing marijuana in American soil. We've had a pretty hard time on our own. But with the union, we can live decent lives and stay off welfare. That's my union. And that's what our union label stands for. So look for the union <laughs> the gang really kicks into the union label jingle. We see Mr. Carlson walk up to the window of the studio. As he watches them singing with a bit of a concerned look on his face, we head into our theme. WKRP in Cincinnati. We return from commercial break to Les just outside the lobby entrance. He's looking out the window as Jennifer comes in to work for the day. She says good morning to Les. He follows her on into the lobby. Les says he witnessed a plane flying over their building, and it was skywriting. But it was writing, Jennifer Jettadore. Jettadore. <laughs> Les looks confused. He asks Jennifer what it means. Looking Les in the eyes, Jennifer tells him. It means, Les, I adore you. It also means 
A very silly man has mistaken friendship for affection. Les asks who this man is. Jennifer says it's Henri, and he is very persistent. And now a special look at this episode's bandage placement for the five-time Buckeye NewsHawk Award winner, Les Nessman. This is the Les Nessman Bandage Report. Now here's Donna Stare with her report about Les Nessman. Right middle finger in three places. This has been a look at the bandage placement for Silver Sow and Copper Cob award-winning journalist Les Nessman. Les was witnessing commercial skywriting. The origins of skywriting are disputed. It's said to have first appeared during World War I and was most likely developed by British RAF pilots. They realized they could communicate with the ground by releasing a high-viscosity oil or paraffin into a hot exhaust manifold while flying in specific patterns. Few pilots have the skill to skywrite legibly. The first commercial use of skywriting in the U.S. took place over Times Square in November of 1922. RAF Captain Cyril Turner spelled out, Hello, USA, paused, then spelled Call Vanderbilt 7200. The Vanderbilt Hotel in New York, who had paid for the message, was reported to have received more than 47,000 phone calls within three hours. Les is hugging his clipboard to his chest. He asks Jennifer what it feels like to have people adore her this way. I don't think I have to tell you, Les, do I? Jennifer smiles at Les, who does a nervous giggle. He then takes his mail and leaves the lobby. Jennifer goes into Mr. Carlson's office. She walks in on Mr. Carlson twirling one of his lures so that its long tassel is spinning around and around. He is singing a little tune as the green tassels stick straight out to the sides. (laughs) He stops spinning the lure as he tells Jennifer, these are the ones they use down in the keys when you go after the big ones, with 20-pound test line. Most guys use 40, huh? I use 20. (laughs) Hemingway used 20. Of course, Ernie used to drink a lot when he fished. I don't. Sun, rocking of the boat. Upsets my tummy. But the similarities are there. We're not sure where Art's getting his info about Ernie. It is true, legendary American author Ernest Hemingway is regarded as one of big game fishing's greatest practitioners. He wrote about the sport, and he had a significant role in shaping it, especially in the Keys. The Hemingway method for catching the big ones quickly and without a lot of fight caught on quickly in the 1930s. Since Ernie was known for catching massive marlin and bluefin tuna, including a record 468-pound marlin off Cuba, we're guessing he was using more than 20-pound test line. We did find stories of Hemingway finessing larger fish using lighter line, but nothing about him always using 20-pound test. Art is right, though, about the whole drinking thing. Jennifer begins to leave the office when Mr. Carlson calls her back. Hey, Jennifer? Yes? I uh, heard the employees singing this morning about sewing. Jennifer puts her hand on his shoulder. Well, Mr. Carlson, I think there are some doors best left unopened. She starts to leave again when Mr. Carlson tells her because of the bump in ratings, he'd like to give everyone a little bonus. Nice little raise right across the board. You know, nice, not great. 
noticeable, but not nuts. Jennifer tells him that's really nice of him. He tells Jennifer it makes him feel good, too. It's sort of one big happy family. Jennifer asks Art what Mama thinks. Oh, well, you know, she, she approved. I, I caught her somewhere between the second and ninth martini. I, I think she mumbled in the affirmative. <laughs> Carlson laughs, and Jennifer joins in. <laughs> I just, just, just kidding, of course. Art tells Jennifer he'd like to give a company dinner next week. Could you find an elegant, yet somehow cheap restaurant? Jennifer tells him she'll get right on it, and she heads out of the office. Art's going to announce the raises at the dinner. Feeling pretty good about himself, Art goes over and picks up the lure. He begins twirling it round and round again. Oh, Artie Carlson, you're one pretty nice guy. <laughs> we fade into the bullpen where Bailey and Les are talking by the filing cabinets. No, I don't approve of unions. I never have. Bailey is trying to convince Les that unions are not communism. It's as American as apple pie. It's Slavic. Bailey looks at Les. What? Tell you what, Bailey, I'll make a deal with you. I'll join the union if you can tell me where Jimmy Hoffa is. Les isn't the only one wanting to know the whereabouts of Jimmy Hoffa. James Riddle Hoffa, or Jimmy, to his many associates, had gone missing July 30th of 1975. Jimmy had come to prominence in the International Brotherhood of Teamsters, or IBT, in the 1940s. Teamsters are truck drivers. Although he'd never driven a truck, Hoffa managed to get himself elected president of Teamsters Local 299 out of Detroit in December of 1946. Hoffa rose in prominence, eventually becoming head of the Michigan Teamsters thanks to numerous connections with known mobsters. Hoffa was among friends at the IBT. The Teamsters Union was so corrupt, the IBT was kicked out of the AFL-CIO in 1957. The same year Hoffa took over. By 1967, he was convicted of a whole list of things, including jury tampering, bribery, conspiracy, and fraud. Hoffa was sentenced to 13 years in prison. A hush-hush agreement with Nixon got him out in 1971, just four years into his sentence. Hoffa was restricted from any union activity until 1980. Amazingly, the Teamsters threw their support behind Nixon in the 1972 election. He was the first Republican presidential candidate ever supported by a labor union. That's so weird that they would change over to Nixon in uh, 72 yeah, amazing, after wasn't it? Jimmy got out. So Hoffa disappeared July 30th of 1975. He had a meeting set with a couple of sweethearts. Former Jersey Teamsters local leader Anthony Provenzano. Provenzano was also a capo regime of the Genovese crime family. The other guy scheduled to be in on this meeting was Detroit Mafia kingpin Anthony Giacalone. The meeting was set for 3 p.m. Hoffa was last seen in the parking lot outside of Manchu's Red Fox restaurant in Bloomfield Hills, Michigan, between 2.15 and 2.30 he disappeared without a trace. In 1982, seven years later, he was declared legally dead. Both Provenzano and Gia Cologne denied having a meeting scheduled with Hoffa. Following an extensive <laughs> investigation, they both were determined to have been nowhere near the Red Fox at the time of Hoffa's disappearance. Although rumors abound to this day, Hoffa's body has never been found, and no one has been charged with foul play in relation to his disappearance. Do you notice it's Tony and Tony 
It's Anthony Provenzano and Anthony Giacalone. So it's Anthony. Tony, Tony and Tony had no idea where we were nowhere around there. Uh, nothing to do with him. Yeah, where are you? Yeah, where were you? Bailey rolls her eyes. She's not giving up. She tells Les she knows unions have gotten a lot of bad publicity. But you just don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. Les asks her what she means. I mean, just because there's a little bit of dirty water, you don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. Les continues to stare at Bailey. <laughs> you see, you keep the baby. Well, I should certainly hope so. <laughs> Finally giving up, Bailey just turns to go back to her desk. Bailey used the proverb, don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. We had to look it up. You may have seen an internet post or email claiming the phrase refers to bathing practices in the Middle Ages. The post claims bathing order left the baby until last, and the water could be so dirty, it was easy to throw out the baby with the bathwater. This is a complete lie. This seemingly immortal internet explanation is entirely made up, with no basis in fact. The only thing this false post got right was the date. The phrase was first published in the early 1500s, 1512 to be exact. It's German. It appeared in Thomas Moomer's satirical work, Appeal to Fools. That's the translation. We aren't even going to try the original German. The proverb is advising the reader to be selective when rejecting ideas. Just because one part of something might be objectionable, don't lose the parts that have value. The phrase did not come into English usage until it was translated by Thomas Carlyle in 1853. By the late 1800s, it had become common in both Britain and the U.S. Herb enters the bullpen, and would you get a look at Herb? It's, it's time! Herb Darlick, fashion alert. Herb is wearing robin egg blue today. He has a plaid jacket of robin egg blue, gray, and white, a white dress shirt with blue vertical stripes, a maroon and white paisley tie, solid robin egg blue polyester pants, a white belt, and his white shoes. You know what I love about this outfit? Between the shirt, the tie, and the coat, we have three different textures. We've got plaid stripes and then paisley. It's a mess. It is a mess. Herb asks Bailey and Les what's going on. Bailey tells him absolutely nothing. Les fills Herb in on the news. They're going to join a union, Herb. The employees, right here at the station. Herb slowly looks up at Les. A union... Uh-huh. Herb makes a sound with his teeth and tongue. He stands for a bit, and then he makes a decision. I'm telling. Herb takes off out the door of the bullpen. It's kind of like it, these arguments you used to have with your siblings. My, I'm going to tell mom. My you know. brother. I used to run away from him. I'm telling. Yeah. Okay, I've got a quick note about sales pros and unions. Why isn't Herb included in the union talks? I was wondering that, too. Well, he works at the station, but he's not really in broadcasting. Although sales rep is currently the single largest job description in the United States, there is no union for salespeople. Herb's not considered a broadcast worker. He's a sales professional working in broadcasting. Sales skills are transferable. If you can sell, you can sell pretty much anything. Media salespeople regularly make the jump from print to radio or from radio to TV. Salespeople operate somewhat independently in every industry and are paid primarily based on their performance. 
If you don't sell, you don't earn commission, so you don't get paid. The hours, the demands, and the pay for sales positions vary widely. Since each sales situation is so unique, trying to unionize sales pros, even within an industry, has proven to be nearly impossible. So that's why Herb's not included in the negotiations. That explains it. We cut into Art's office where Travis is sitting on the couch as Mr. Carlson is describing what it's like to catch a big fish, and he is really into it. Got a fish running perpendicular to the bait, and then all of a sudden, bam, he hits it. You hear the outrigger go, See that line going out, and all of your senses are suddenly gathered there in that one moment. Art has his hands clasped together tightly. I tell you, Travis, sometimes I think it's better than, it's kind of a sudden feeling. Better than, say, <clears throat> golf. Mm, I don't think golf was his first Mm-mm. choice for a comparison there. He had to clean that up. So Travis tells Art, that sounds good. I'm a little worn out just hearing about it. Mm-hmm, and Andy got it. <laughs> the door to Mr. Carlson's office opens. Herb quickly walks in. Big guy. A union. I'm not kidding right here. What are we going to do? I'm serious. Mr. Carlson looks at him. What? Herb tells him again that the employees are starting a union. They're all going to be Teamsters. They're, they're going to be in Las Vegas all the time. <laughs> <laughs> Mr. Carlson turns to Travis and asks him what Herb's talking about. Travis tells him there's a big drive on to unionize radio employees all over town. I guess they contacted our people. So Art tells Travis they won't have a union at WKRP. He won't have it. Travis tells him he might have to accept it. We're a family here. I'm not going to have outsiders telling us what to do. Travis tells Art they should just wait and see what goes down. I've been doing a little... um snooping around. Mr. Carlson says he'll do a little snooping, too. Don't worry. I can be cool, as you say. Uh, Yeah, he picks up the phone and dials. Well, Johnny? Yeah, this is Arthur Carlson. Listen, you lousy ingrates thinking of joining Union? (laughs) Oh. Well, well, thanks a lot. (laughs) Huh? No, not yet. I'll tell you when you're fired. Okay, so maybe not so cool. (laughs) Art slams the phone receiver down. Mr. Carlson turns to Andy and tells him he was thinking of giving everyone a raise, a nice raise. Andy tells him it's a great idea. He should do it. Well, not now, Travis. It's different now. There's a difference between offering somebody something and having demand it from you. What kind of a union? (laughs) Radio employees. Huh? Mr. Carlson and Herb look at each other, not quite understanding. People who work in radio. (laughs) Mr. Carlson heads to the office door. Oh, it's fairly clear what I'm going to have to do. What? what? The door slams and Mr. Carlson is gone, leaving Andy and Herb without a clue. There really is a union for radio people. It's called the National Association of Broadcast Employees and Technicians, or NABET. NABET first organized in 1934 as the Association of Technical Employees. These days, NABET represents about 12,000 employees working in television, radio, film, and media production in 35 locals. You lousy and great second joining union? We transition to Mama's house, where Mama is out on her patio, misting her flowers and plants. Mama, of course, is being played by Carol Bruce, one of our favorite semi-recurring characters. For a full bio on Carol Bruce, check our Mama's Review podcast episode. We hear I'll Get By As Long As I Have You by Nori Paramore, his strings and orchestra playing in the background. 
Mama is talking about spiritual awareness as she goes from plant to plant, spritzing them with water from a misting bottle. You know, people today live without spiritual awareness. Everyone is so wrapped up in their own pettiness, they don't notice the magnificence of life that goes on around them. Now, my plants are everything to me. I notice everything about them. I know who's growing and who's not growing. I talk to them, I nurture them, and they in turn nurture me with the daily miracle of their mere existence. Mama turns and looks to someone. The camera pans and we see Mr. Carlson standing by the door that opens out onto the patio. Mom, the employees are talking about forming a union at the station. Mama does a quiet chuckle under her breath. Suddenly there's a chill in the air. Sit down, son. Mr. Carlson scrambles into a chair at the patio table. We can see Mama beginning to form a plan. And my goodness, she has quite the uh, collection of plants the out garden. there. Well, and it was funny how she was all sweetness and light and growing and nurturing. Well, and she suddenly, doesn't want to upset the plants. But suddenly she's totally cold. Oh, yes. Just you can boom. see that come over her. So the lush and soothing tune playing behind this scene is I'll Get By As Long As I Have You. This version was a 1956 release from a guy named Nori Paramore with his strings and orchestra. Nori was a nickname for Norman. He was quite the musical entrepreneur. Nori was a British record producer, composer, arranger, pianist, and orchestral conductor. Nori steered Cliff Richards in his early career, producing and arranging his material. Just how big a deal was Nori as a producer? Nori was tied with one other British music producer for creating the most number one hit singles in the UK. The other producer the Beatles production genius George Martin. What we're hearing here was Nori's other outlet for his musical passion. Nori was a band leader, composer, and arranger of note. He had a signature lush orchestral sound. Although Nori never had a charted single, his albums sold well with a certain demographic throughout the 1960s and 70s. We're betting that Nori featured heavily in the former WKRP format, and he would certainly appeal to Lillian Carlson. We leave Mama's house and head back to the bullpen where Johnny is hanging up the phone. He tells the others everyone will be at the meeting tonight. Venus is smiling, sitting at Herb's desk, and Bailey is leaning on her desk. She's also smiling. Jennifer walks into the bullpen. Jennifer. How'd you like to join a union? Which brings us to... The line of the episode. I already belong to a union. It's a quasi-religious group called the International Sisterhood of Blonde Receptionists. (laughs) There are only 12 members in the world. We meet once every two years in Switzerland. If I told you our minimum salary, you'd have a heart attack and die. Bye. (laughs) That is quite a union. (laughs) Jennifer leaves the bullpen. Venus turns to Johnny. You know, I believe her. Yeah. Johnny looks at Venus and Bailey, saying he guesses they all agree on this union thing, except for Les. Am I right, Les? Les raises his head from his work, and he glares at Johnny. Les, why don't you just... Never. 
Just come tonight and listen? Never. Just for a cup of coffee? Never. Or you could cover it as a news story. Okay. Good. Good. One for all and all for one. Why don't we all get some lunch? They're heading to the door of the bullpen just as Herb and Andy enter. As Johnny stands, he says all for one and one for all. This is the phrase made famous by French author Alexandre Dumas in his wildly popular novel, The Three Musketeers from 1844. The Musketeers used it as a battle cry to show their solidarity. Interesting to note, this phrase did not originate with Dumas. The same phrase appeared in the William Shakespeare poem The Rape of Lucrece in 1594, a full 250 years before Dumas would borrow it for his novel. The phrase is called a chiasmus. It's a rhetorical device where two clauses are balanced against each other by reversing their structure. Now, you can't get anything past Billy Shakespeare. Nah, Bill did everything. He came up with all of it. He created language. Well, well, well. I see that you're with Herb again. Andy looks at all of them. That's right. And I think it's about time I tell everybody that Herb and I have been lovers now for almost two years. Andy puts his arm around Herb's shoulders. Herb's blatant homophobia has now become the stuff of office mocking. He pushes Andy's arm off his shoulders and quickly moves away from him. Andy's getting a chuckle out of making Herb so nervous. Andy looks at the group and asks if they're all going to the meeting tonight. They all nod their heads. Well, uh, go get them, Tigers. The group files out the door, but Johnny hangs back. You really hate this, don't you, Travis? No, not really. Johnny looks at Travis for a moment, then heads out and down the hall. Travis turns to Herb, who's sitting at his desk. Andy quietly walks up behind Herb. Herb hears him, and his eyes dart back and forth, not knowing what to expect. Alone at last, Herbie. (laughs) Travis puts his arm around Herb's shoulder as Herb makes a face. (laughs) It's a quasi-religious group called the International Sisterhood of Blonde Receptionists. Back at Mama's house, Mama and Mr. Carlson are still out on the patio. Mama's washing her hands as she's talking to Mr. Carlson. I'm going to suggest a union vote at the station. If they do, your hands are tied. I mean, you can't give raises or even promises of raises until they decided whether or not to join. Mama tells Carlson that she's going to meet with some of the other owners tonight. She says she will need a united front. Mama asks Mr. Carlson if he has a way of starting a rumor at the station. Less. Okay. It didn't take him long to come up with that Less. idea. Less. Yeah, that's how you do it. <laughs> so Mama tells him to let them know through the rumor that she's going to sell the station if there are any union problems. Just let it go. Art's not really thrilled with this idea. Ah, oh, Mom, did that... Mama tells him he has to do it. This isn't a game. Do you want a union in there? No. But then you listen to me. And we'll crush these people right into the ground. Mama smells some of her flowers after she says this. Mmm, that's heavenly. And we have a very uncomfortable art as we go into break. We come back to the lobby where three men enter, each carrying two large containers of long-stemmed red roses. There has to be close to a hundred roses here. Oh no, Henri strikes again. One of the men asks for Miss Marlowe. I'm sorry, she's no longer with us. Jennifer tells them to put them somewhere. (laughs) The only one of the three to speak then suggests another room. 
Jennifer smiles and leads them into Mr. Carlson's office. The talking delivery man is being played by Robert Starr. The other guys didn't say anything, so no credit. Robert Starr is also sometimes credited as Rob Starr. He got his start as an actor in 1976 in the TV movie Amelia Earhart. He played Second Soldier. His first named role came the next year. He was Rex Kramer in the ribald comedy Kentucky Fried Movie. Rob's 27 IMDb profile credits alternate between TV guest shots and small movie roles. Our favorite entry on Rob's credit list? He was religious zealot number five in the hilarious 1980 movie Airplane. He was one of those guys who got pushed out of the way by Stryker as he was running through the airport. We cut into Art's office. He's drinking a cup of coffee and looking out the window, contemplating his union troubles. There's a knock at the door. Yes. Jennifer enters. Mr. Carlson, would you like some flowers for your office? Smiling, Mr. Carlson tells Jennifer he can always count on her no matter what. Yes, I'd love some flowers. Let me be nourished by the magnificence of life. And hey, where have we heard that before? It's a mama callback. (laughs) Jennifer waves the men into Mr. Carlson's office. They begin setting the roses on Carlson's desk, all over Carlson's desk. (laughs) That's a lot of flowers. In the bullpen, Les is on the phone with Venus. He's holding his wristwatch in his other hand, checking the time. Venus. Can you hear me? Les, big news. Be here in 17 minutes. That's right, 17. Les hangs up the phone. Screen blurs and comes in to focus. Time has passed. Les is still looking at the watch. Herb has just filled his coffee mug, and he's humming that Look for the Union label song. (laughs) We see Andy, Bailey, Herb, and Johnny. Herb walks over and sits on the couch next to Johnny. Johnny pointedly stands and moves away from Herb over to the DJ's desk. And whoa, did you get a look at Herb again? It's It's time. time. Herb Darling, fashion alert. A new day, a new alert. Herb is wearing a cream and white plaid jacket with matching plaid pants, a cream-colored dress shirt, with a maroon tie with white polka dots and his white belt and signature white shoes. Venus comes into the bullpen and says hi to Les. Now let's take a look at Venus's vibin' threads. Venus is wearing a gold lame shirt with puffy sleeves that are cuffed three-fourths of the way up. The insides of the sleeves are silver. The shirt tails are tied at the waist above the waistband of his black velvet pants. He has on a black shirt under the jacket that has some type of gold design. Les puts his watch back on. He then asks Herb to please leave the bullpen. When Herb asks why, Les tells him it's union business. Andrew, I don't think we'd be too comfortable with your presence here Herb tells everyone to just wait a minute. He walks over to Les and asks him what's going on. One minute you're some deranged right winger and the next minute you're a union leader. Les takes Herb over to the side. This isn't political. I just like being in charge for a change. (laughs) And I think it's funny how Herb just kind of gets that. He nods his head, says okay, and sits back down at his desk. Johnny asks Les, what's happening? He thought the meeting was at noon. Well, Les tells Johnny the big meeting. 
Is it noon? This is the little meeting before the big meeting. He explains he has some information to tell them before they vote at the big meeting. I happen to know for a definite fact, and please, I've sworn not to tell anyone, I happen to know for a definite fact that if this station goes union, the Carlson family will sell it. Venus doesn't believe this. Where'd you hear that? Les tells him he can't reveal his source. It wasn't Mr. Carlson, was it? Certainly not. He's bluffing, Les. No, he isn't. I love the way that Les says he's sworn not to tell anyone, but he happens to know for, and he goes ahead and tells them. He immediately tells them. That's great. Venus looks at Andy and asks him if it's true. Andy shrugs his shoulders. You know, Travis, I don't know whose side you're on here, but I get the feeling maybe it's not ours. Maybe it'd be better if you left. Travis agrees. He begins to leave, and then he stops, saying that he doesn't want the union business to split them all up. Now, whatever you all decide is cool with me. I mean that. I really do. He walks to the door of the bullpen, then turns back. Come on, Herbie. (laughs) Herb gets up to follow Travis out. Then it hits him what Travis just said, calling him Herbie. He freezes and then plops back down in his chair. We hear the music of a mariachi band coming from the lobby. The camera is focused tight on the door that leads to the bullpen. Andy comes walking through the door, kind of tentatively, not sure what he's going to find in the lobby. As the camera pulls back, we see three musicians playing and singing as Jennifer sits at her desk drinking coffee. The mariachi style is a genre of regional Mexican music that dates back to the 18th century. Mariachi has evolved over the decades, taking on some influences from polkas and waltzes. It came to a national and international prominence in the first half of the 20th century when mariachi was featured at Mexican presidential inaugurations and on the radio. And this group has the uh, big guitar. Oh, yeah. I know it has a name. I don't know what that is. It's a guitaron. Oh, is that what it is? I've been doing some mariachi research. Well, there you go. So I had some big questions about the mariachi band that appears to be playing in the lobby. They're listed in the credits as Los Amigos Mariachis. This is a very generic name. It means the Friends Mariachi. I couldn't find any indication of a band with this name from the 70s or 80s, but these guys really looked like a mariachi band. The three guys in the lobby band are named Ray Sanchez, Alberto Leva, and Pedro Salas. We looked them up on IMDb. Both Ray and Pedro only have a single credit on their IMDb profile. This episode of WKRP. Alberto has three credits on his IMDb profile, this episode of WKRP in 1981, an appearance in the 2017 TV movie Foam Party, and he directed a horror film called Creepy Pasta Death Net in 2020. Alberto's profile lists him both as actor and director. Based on what we found in IMDb, I was really thinking these guys must be actors hired to hold instruments and the music we're hearing is being dubbed. Well, I felt like these guys were a band. They looked too comfortable with the instruments and you really felt like they had worked together before. We were at a dead end. That's when we threw up the Max signal. (laughs) We sent an email to coordinating producer Max Tash. Big news, dear. 
Yes. Um, well, it would appear that you were right. Why do you sound so shocked? Well, you were right. Max <laughs> said the reason they're credited as a band is because they were a band. He said they really and truly are playing the music you're hearing. They shot the scene twice, once with the music playing in the background and another where they were miming playing. They had to do a silent take so they could get Andy's line cleanly without having to worry about balancing the music. Max said he also remembers recording the band in the lobby so they would have a clean copy of the music to mix in during post-production. Max said he believes the master take used in the final is the one where they're really playing. Thanks to Max Tash for that awesome behind-the-scenes information and confirming that I was right. So Andy walks up to Jennifer at her desk and asks her how it's going. She gives him the so-so wave of her hand and continues to stare off into space, trying to ignore the mariachi band that's playing behind her. (laughs) Andy continues to Mr. Carlson's office door, knocks, and then walks in. Mr. Carlson is seated behind his desk, but we can't see him because of the large bouquet of roses sitting in front of him. We hear a voice from behind the flowers. Did you hear the rumor? Andy says he heard. Well, it's no rumor. She'll do it. You'll see. Andy does not sound worried when he tells Mr. Carlson how they'll talk her out of it. Mr. Carlson comes face to face with Andy. You don't understand. I don't want to talk her out of it. What do you think of that? Andy tells him he thinks Art's taking this personally, and he can't do that. Well, this whole union thing is a personal attack on me. Andy says it's not. It's a personal attack on your mother. She's the one who won't raise the salaries. Art crosses his arms, and he asks Andy whose side he's on. Andy tells him he's on the side of the station. But unless I get a picture of your mother in a motel room with a Kodiak bear, nothing is going to happen. <laughs> union or no union, Mr. Carlson. Andy tells Mr. Carlson the people who work at the station love him. Well, they certainly have a funny way of showing it. Andy tells Mr. Carlson they're just trying to protect themselves. From what? From your mom. Andy goes on. Your mother thinks because she owns the license and the tower that she created the profit. That's just not so. The employees do contribute, you know. Mr. Carlson tells Andy he knows. Andy tells Carlson that his mother should be a little bit more willing to acknowledge them, like he is. Art nods his head. Well, you know, Mom. Andy rolls his eyes. I know Mom. And I'd make a deal with the devil to get her to put some money into the station. Hmm, is this a bit of foreshadowing? Or has Andy already done the deal? I wonder. So Art tells Travis he can forget that. He's tried. And he tells Art to not be mad at the others. They're trying just like he is. So Art agrees. And he tells Carlson it's too bad. He can't just tell them. Hmm. Mr. Carlson asks Andy when they are having their meeting. And he says, right now. I'm going to go talk to him. No, you can't. It's against the rules. Don't care. I'm going anyway. Mr. Carlson walks out of his office. Somehow I knew you would. Jennifer comes into the office, closing the door behind her. Could I just sit in here for a second? Andy tells her, sure. Out in the lobby, we can hear the Los Amigos Mariachis. They've gone into a new song, Cuando, Cuando. Jennifer sits on the couch and stares straight ahead. After a bit, Andy looks at her. I don't suppose you'd like to dance. transition to the bullpen where Johnny's talking to Bailey, Venus, Les, and three other guys we don't know. Now, this is possibly 
Moss Steiner, Rex Earhart, and other air personalities that we never get to meet. Well, this is the first time I can remember all the DJs <laughs> and all the other on-air personalities being here together. And, and that's solidarity, brothers and sisters. Johnny turns to look at Bailey. She nods to show her gratitude. This would also be the first time we've ever seen all of the DJs and air personalities together. In the IMDb entry for this episode... A trivia item says the reason we only see the backs of the heads of the other staff members is so they don't have to be paid or credited. Now, this doesn't make any sense. Background is background. You get paid for being on camera, whether we see your face or not. The two guys who didn't speak during the flower delivery, they're making the same non-speaking day rate as these guys in the meeting, and none of them are getting credit. Johnny begins explaining why they're all there. I think the time has come when we've got to get the hobnail boot of management off the workers' throats. They're going to vote yes or no to a union. Now, he does warn them if they vote yes, they could all be fired. Mm -hmm. They could sell a station. Uh, clearly, we're dealing with some pretty vicious people here. <coughs> Mr. Carlson, one of those vicious people, walks into the bullpen Johnny starts to tell him he can't be there, but Mr. Carlson interrupts. He tells them all his mother doesn't really want to sell the station. She told me that nobody wants to buy a union shop unless it's real good. And of course, that, that leaves us out. I, I don't want a union because I'd prefer the employees come to me so that I could prove that I am a responsible manager. But uh, you decide. Either way, it, it's fine with me. We're still family. Mr. Carlson softly punches Johnny in the arm and leaves the bullpen. The whole demeanor of the room has changed. Johnny quietly looks at everyone. Well, um, where were we? <laughs> we transition to Mama's house. It's night. We see an outside shot. We fade to the patio where Mom is sitting at the patio table drinking a glass of wine. Nori Paramore is back on Mama's sound system. This time, the cut is Stairway to the Stars. There are candles on the table. So they voted five to four against the union. I must say you've handled this beautifully. <laughs> Frankly, I don't know how you did it, but... My congratulations. Mama raises her glass to the as-yet-unseen person she's speaking to, and then we see it's Andy sitting opposite her at the table. I'm just doing my job, Mrs. Carlson. Andy stands up and starts to walk out. He's almost to the door when Mrs. Carlson speaks. And I won't forget our deal. You better not. Andy walks down a hallway and out the door. Mama takes another sip of her drink, and then the screen fades to black. I'd like to drop in a devious Canadian conspiracy theory here. Noted WKRP blogger, fine upstanding Canadian citizen, and friend of the podcast, Roy Penny, has an interesting take on Andy's role in all of this. What if Mr. Travis himself is the one who gave the union a heads up about approaching the WKRP staff? Roy proposes that Andy wins whichever way the vote goes. If Andy can block the union, which he does, he proves to Mama he's valuable. And then he can use his control as leverage to get things done through her. Now, if the union had won, 
Andy would still have gotten more funds because the union rules would now be forcing increases in things like salaries. It's an interesting theory and a good example of why you should check out Roy's blog, WKRP Relived on Blogspot, for a thoughtful take on all things WKRP. We come back to the lobby for our capper scene. Jennifer is at her desk reading a magazine when Andy enters. What do you think it would cost to fix this room up really nice? You thinking of buying a new lamp? (laughs) Andy smiles. He's already spending the new funds Mama has promised. Andy turns away just as the door to Mr. Carlson's office opens. He tells Travis he's just had an interesting conversation with his mother. Seems that she's ready to start shoveling some money back into the station. Is that right? Yeah, big money. Andy tells Art, that's great. Yeah, I guess she's just now coming around to my way of thinking. So Carlson's looking pretty proud of himself. You know, I've had to be kind of tough with her uh, recently, Andy. Brutal, actually. (laughs) Sometimes... Well, sometimes you have to do things you don't particularly like. Art puts his arm around Andy's shoulder and guides him towards the office. It's life, Travis. (laughs) Uh Uh-huh. You've been fishing down in the Keys. (laughs) The two disappear into Art's office, so Andy is letting Art think he stopped the union and got Mama to break free with some cash. Andy is becoming quite the puppet master. As we fade on Art's office door, we say goodbye to the union. And what is next week's episode, Donna? We will be talking about rumors. Johnny's apartment is being fumigated and he needs a place to stay. Everyone turns him down, except for Bailey. Rumors start to fly that the two are having an affair. Johnny's also worried about a new DJ taking over his time slot. That's going to do it for this episode of the WKRP cast. If you'd like to watch along with us, make sure to check our show notes. Find us on social media. You can follow our Facebook page at WKRP cast. For more WKRP fun, become a patron. Go to patreon.com slash WKRP cast for behind the scenes fun, full interviews and more. Got a question, comment, or correction? Let us know about it. Write us, WKRPcast at gmail.com. And remember to please rate and review us over on Apple Podcasts. Thanks for listening. Bye now. May the good news be yours. WKRP cast is not endorsed by MTM Enterprises, Shout Factory, or CBS. This podcast is intended for entertainment and informational purposes only. WKRP in Cincinnati, the WKRP logo, and all names, pictures, and audio of WKRP in Cincinnati characters are registered trademarks of MTM, CBS, Shout Factory, or their respective copyright holders. Almost forgot, fellow babies. Booger!